You've launched a business. You've got your first sale. You're excited. You've launched the website. Sales have started coming in. You're making money. What do you do when you make money? Spend it? Holiday? Margaritas? Cocktails? Travel? New car? New kitchen? Do you spend it? Well, that's what your average entrepreneur does. But as you know, we're a little bit different round here. What would it take to become the hero of your own life? To build the business you've always dreamt of? To make money doing something you love? It's time to take control. Can we get on with making money and having fun now? I'm not doing it if it's not fun. Join the rebellion with Alan Donegan and welcome to Rebel Entrepreneur. Welcome to episode 22 of The Rebel Entrepreneur. This is the Entrepreneur's Guide to Investing, and I have two people with me on the show today. I have my co-founder of Pop-Up Business School, Mr. Simon Payne. Alan, it's fantastic to be here and in the presence of our guest as well. This is phenomenal. I know, and I'm so excited to have Mr. J.L. Collins, author of The Simple Path to Wealth, the stock series, and so much more. And J.L., welcome to the show. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's an honor to be with you guys. Uh, It's fun to hang out again. It's been too long. I couldn't actually think of anyone I would rather have on the show to talk about investing, anyone at all. So thank you for agreeing, because actually this is a very important subject, as Simon and I know from previous experience. Making money and holding on to money are two different skills, and holding on to money and growing money are different skills. And this show has focused almost exclusively on how do you build that business and how do you bring the money in. But what I really want to talk to you about, because it's so important for all the entrepreneurs listening, is how do you hold on to it and how do you grow it? I think that's the most important bit. Now, Jim, if you could sum up your philosophy on investing in a sentence or two, I like to make it easy right at the start of the podcast. How would you sum it up? Well, I suppose I would say, first of all, if you're in debt, that's an emergency and you need to get out of debt. And then once you're at ground zero, so to speak, you live on less than you bring in and you invest the difference and hold it for the long term. So it's a matter of living below your means to free up capital to invest. So you're not only working, you're not only trading your labor and effort for money, but you're employing your money to work for you. I love that. And I think there's actually quite a lot in there about the different elements. The first is debt. And as everyone listening knows, this whole podcast is about building businesses without debt. But if you have started your business with a loan, get that paid off. It's so important to pay that debt down before we start investing. Then there's a little bit of, I guess there's some confusion over the word investing. And Simon and I have spoken a lot about this. There's investing back in the business and then there's investing. And I think the word investing has several different terms in business. How do you define investing, Jim? Well, I think you kind of laid the groundwork just then. When you're starting a business, when you're building a business, frequently rather than taking money out of the business to pay yourself or to invest in other sources, you plow that money back in the business if you see that opportunity. But at some point, hopefully, your business gets to a point where it's up and running and it's throwing off excess cash. And obviously, that's when you you pay yourself or you pay yourself a little more 
And then the entrepreneurs I know, who I have the most admiration for, where they go smart, take that excess capital and they invest it elsewhere to diversify the risk of their own business. And maybe that could be to build a second business, or it could be to invest in the area that I talk most about, which is uh, the stock market and specifically index funds that track the stock market. I love that. So it's the bit that really struck me there was diversifying away from your own business, because I think this is a really interesting point. You put all your eggs in one basket as an entrepreneur and you watch it very closely and you look after it and build it. But there's not a lot you can do if something comes along and changes that. And if you haven't diversified and invested elsewhere, that can be a very painful experience. Simon, what are your thoughts on this about investing back in a business and diversifying? And yeah, where are you coming on this investing stuff? Uh, Like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole uh, (laughs) is where I'm coming from. And, you know, I'm very, as you know, you dragged me kicking and screaming into this world a few years ago when you first discovered JL's book. And, you know, I've been on that journey with you, but a few steps behind. We've always joked about assets and liabilities. Uh, There are three liabilities in my house, aged four, 11, and 17. Uh, (laughs) But I'm working on that one, by the way. I've got strong hopes for the little one. He's he's feral. I mean, I think he's got entrepreneur in the making for sure. You know, JL, I read something on your website, which was just a brilliant read. And it was a very simple read. And You've got lots of great stuff on on your website, of course, about investing and you go into so much detail. But the one that really talked to me was you wrote an article about, you called it how you failed your daughter (laughs) and a simple path to wealth. And I think you you sort of put in in the article your daughter's comments about money. And she said, I can't quite remember something on the lines of, Dad, I don't want to think about it. And that was my attitude to money in the early days that, you know, when I first started earning, I was just very pleased and very grateful and felt very rich because I I didn't have any particular outgoings. You know, I was a single guy. I was living in pretty cheap accommodation. I was earning good money, regular money, and I always had enough. And I didn't have or didn't seek either any education about the impact of credit cards and loans and getting the car you want. And you can't quite afford the one that you want to get. So, That's actually quite an attractive deal that you can get on the car and so on. And all of those mistakes that everybody makes because it's conventional wisdom, you know, I've kind of made them. And it's taken me a good chunk of time, blood, sweat, tears, and a few scars, and a lot of help from people like you through Chautauqua and and obviously the journey that Alan's been on. I mean, I, I would still say I'm just at the beginner stages of it, but boy, do I wish I knew then what I knew now. (laughs) <laughs> and it does, you know, all of the things that we've been talking about here and uh, we're going to talk about too are against conventional wisdom. And that therein lies part of the challenge because, you know, you've got pressures from your families, pressures from loved ones, pressures from your friends, from society, from marketing messages, from our kind of ingrained culture and, and all of our friends and family. And we see what they do and you just kind of assume that's the path that you take. But the things that you wrote in that article, they really did sort of jump out at me. Firstly, is very simple. But secondly, the things that most people don't know, which is fascinating. So, Simon, you covered a lot of ground there. First of all, with a little bit of luck and encouragement, those three liabilities hopefully will turn into assets in the future <laughs> years. So plan. I think that's one thing you could work on and look forward to. 
Secondly, that your comment about, you know, you wish you'd heard about this stuff decades earlier is probably the most common comment I get from readers and who come to the blog and put their thoughts down or on Twitter or Facebook. And I, and I confess when I read that, I, I think to myself, yeah, me too, because it took me decades of wandering in the wilderness to figure this stuff out and put it down on paper. I wish, you know, I wish I'd had access to my book when I was in my 20s, but that was not to be. Third thing is I, I wrote it for my daughter, Jessica, and the comment that you referred to when she, she actually had come back from college, and I immediately launched into one of my lectures, and I had pushed this stuff way too hard, way too early, and kind of turned her off to it. And she stopped me, and she said, as you indicated, you know, Dad, I, I know this stuff is important, because as Christy Shen, who I know you've interviewed, says, if you understand money, life is easy. If you don't understand money, life is really hard. And of course, like all parents, I wanted my kid to have a great life with lots of opportunity and, and options in front of her. And, and I wanted the path to be as easy as it is, so or as it could be. So anyway, uh, I pushed it too hard. And she said, I know this is important. I just don't want to have to think about it all the time. And that was an epiphany for me because it made me realize that people like me who like this stuff are the odd ones out. You know, normal people have more important things to do with their life. And I'm going to guess that most of the people listening to this podcast who are entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs fall into that category. They don't want to spend all their time trying to figure out investing. They want to spend their time building their businesses. And that makes a great amount of sense. Now, the good news is, and it's the reason that I call it the simple path to wealth in the book, is that it really takes almost no effort on the investing side. You need to educate yourself a little bit, and then you need to get a couple of very simple things right, and then you put it on autopilot and let it run, and otherwise forget about it. And not only does that work, but in a sense, it's a superpower. And here's what I mean when I say that. People like me who like this stuff are paying attention to it all the time. And if you do that, the temptation to tinker is sometimes overwhelming. And especially the temptation to tinker when the market gets very volatile, as it has been in the last couple of months, uh, can be overwhelming. And the problem with that is that you might think you're helping yourself, but the research is pretty clear. The more you tinker, the worse your results. So here's the superpower. My daughter, who's got her investing set on autopilot, is probably not even going to notice the market's drop because she just doesn't care. And so she's not going to be tempted to tinker. And so she's just going to stay the course, which is the best possible thing to do through thick and thin. And at the end of 10, 20, 30 years, she's going to vastly outperform all those people who tinker, including and maybe especially the professionals who supposedly know how to do that better. And the research indicates that no, they don't outperform, they underperform, but they charge fees to do that. Jim, I think one of the things that is really interesting there is investing was never on Simon or Mai's route to freedom. We always thought, build a business, make a shed load of money, then you're a millionaire, then that's it. We didn't even think investing was a route to freedom. Actually, I thought the opposite. I thought was investing was a route to to despair and destruction, having watched my father do it to such great aplomb. So like, how did you get to this? Why is investing a route to freedom? Do you think every entrepreneur should be investing? 
Well, so first of all, I think going to your comment about your father, which is a, a striking one, I think most people's experience with investing is like his, because investing is a, if you do it in the traditional way, in the way that Wall Street encourages, it's loaded with fees and it's very treacherous. And people are encouraged to try to pick individual stocks, which is extraordinarily difficult, uh, even for the professionals. And so most of those things leave you bleeding by the side of the road. That's bad news. The good news is you don't need those things. You know, what you need is much simpler, much more reliable over time. And we can talk about that in a little bit. But going back to your core question about should everybody be investing? You know, entrepreneurs, and I think if you're building a business, it is a great way to build wealth. There's no question about that. And it's a great place to focus your time and your money and your efforts while you're growing it. But as we talked about a little bit earlier, hopefully, as you get that business up and growing and it's throwing off cash, as long as you're not squandering it, you hopefully will have excess money to diversify with. And that's the role investing can play because it takes up so little of your time. This is true, by the way, not just of entrepreneurs, but people who work in regular jobs. You know, you want to expand so that you're not dependent on your labor or even your business if you're an entrepreneur to provide your money. You want your money working for you as well. And that's what investing does. Nice thing about it is when you get your business to that stage, then you have this flow of cash that you can begin diverting into index funds, which is the way I recommend that you invest and build it over time, which allows you to take advantage of the volatility of the stock market. Great example of that is I have a couple of friends here in the U.S. They live in rural Virginia. They started a business a number of years ago, buying things. They say they buy trash. They call themselves scavengers, and then they resell on eBay. And they have an eBay store, and they've been very, very successful doing that. Successful enough that they pay for a nice lifestyle. And then they were building excess capital. And what they chose to do is buy some houses in the rural community, which I guess is a beautiful area, and renovate them and operate them as Airbnbs. And they've done that. Now they've bought a commercial building in a little downtown area of the little town they're near, and they're renovating the upstairs into an Airbnb and the downstairs into a coffee shop. But all of that takes a lot of their energy, takes a lot of their time. And, you know, we've had conversations and they're getting to the stage where they only have so much time and only so much energy. And they're thinking, how much longer do we really want to do it? And of course, the beauty of having investments is it takes very little of your time, almost none. It becomes passive and your money is doing the heavy lifting for you. So I think that's the role that it'll play. And they're not quite ready yet because they still have things they want to build in their two businesses, but at least it's on their radar. So when the time comes, they can begin to diversify. By the way, speaking of diversifying, you know, what's going on with COVID-19 in their particular part of the country and the county where they are, where they have their Airbnbs, shut down. I mean, the county simply said, you cannot operate your Airbnb. Well, of course, now they have these houses that have all the same expenses that are going on. Of course, the county didn't say, you don't have to pay your real estate taxes. We still want those. <laughs> but the county basically said, you're out of business until we tell you you're back in business. Fortunately for them, that's not the only business they have. They have the, the eBay business. 
But if they didn't and they had investments, then that would protect them. So it is a great path to build wealth with your business, but it also has you very specialized and a little bit at risk if you're in in one business. And it pays to at least begin thinking about how you want to diversify, particularly when you don't want to put so much time and effort into what is making you money. I agree completely. Simon and I actually went through this not long after Simon came back and we were running Pop-Up Business School together. There was a change in government policy that affected our primary customer housing associations. And almost overnight, we lost a large percentage of our orders. They just cancelled. And we were left thinking, what do we do now? That's where our money came from. And we actually were at that stage wondering, do we continue pop-up? What do we do? Where do we go? We need to make money. And it's quite a difficult time. And you can never see that stuff coming. Never see that stuff coming. And it's not uncommon either. I mean, I my dad was self-employed. And unfortunately, he was a cigarette smoker. And as, his, as the cigarettes uh, impinged on his health and his energy, his ability to work dropped. And along with it, his income and the lifestyle of our family. That was one of the things that sort of made me think about never wanting to be solely dependent on my on being able to trade my own labor for money. Your illustration is a good one. The one I just said of of uh, my friends in Virginia, had the government basically say, you can't do this anymore for a while. You know, we live in an uncertain world and it pays to have backup plans and options. Yes, it does. It really does. So let's just get very practical for a moment. Let's imagine I'm an entrepreneur. My business is going well. I've managed to put aside, I don't know, 20 grand. I've made 20 grand. It's there. I'm very tempted to buy a holiday or a sports car. I'm fighting that. What do I do with it, Jim? What do I actually do? Well, first of all, I'm not opposed to treating yourself to holidays and even sports cars as long as you can do it from a position of power. What do I mean by that? Well, I, I mean where you can afford it easily and comfortably. So certainly you don't want to borrow money for those things. If, you know, the old adage, if you have to borrow money, you can't afford it. And that, by the way, applies to cars. I'm a big believer in just paying cash for cars. But if you can afford it comfortably, if you can afford it from a position of power, then by all means, treat yourself. It's, you know, life isn't just about work. But one of the things that you can buy with that money is your freedom. Now, for me personally, that was always the most important thing for me to spend my money on. And the way you buy freedom in my world is through investing. So I always set aside 50% of my income and I spent it buying my freedom, which means I spent it buying investments that would do the heavy lifting for me. So what does freedom mean to you, Jim? What is this freedom you talk about? (laughs) Well, freedom, financial freedom, is when you have enough invested that it is throwing off enough money to cover all of your expenses and maybe even a little bit more so that you are not dependent on your own labor. You're not dependent on your job or your boss or if you're an entrepreneur, your customers or as we talked about earlier as an entrepreneur, the, the slings and arrows of fate that can come out of nowhere and derail you. And of course, that's not uncommon. So there are mathematical formulas for what that means. And the most common is based on a thing that's called the 4% rule. 
research suggests that you can pull 4% of a portfolio and it will last indefinitely. So the math then becomes very simple. You simply take what you spend every year or what you want to spend every year and you multiply it by 25 and that gives you the number that you need to have invested to cover that spending rate. So an illustration, let's suppose you say you want to spend 40,000 pounds or $40,000. You multiply that 25 and you get a nice round million dollars. That means that if you have a million dollars invested properly, you can pull that 40,000 every year indefinitely. Of course, the other way to look at that is if you have a certain amount invested, a certain amount of capital and it's invested properly, then you could take 4% of that a year. So again, if you have a million dollars, by definition, you're financially independent if your spend rate is 40,000. If your spend rate is 60,000, well, either you're going to have to keep building your investments till you have a million and a half, or you're going to have to figure out how to live on 40,000. But the math is really very, very simple. Or you can make that 20 grand gap. So you could live off the 40 and then just work for 20 part time. You know, you're absolutely correct. And that's a brilliant observation that I think is overlooked quite a bit. You know, it's especially when I'm talking to people who uh, are in soul crushing jobs. And for the sake of argument, they say, you know, I've got the million dollars invested. I've been diligent. You know, I've been living on less than I I make and I've been investing the difference and I've I've got this million dollars, but I need 50,000 or 60,000 to live on. But this job's killing me. Well, first of all, when you look at the Trinity study, 4% is not the only percentage that works. It's a very conservative number. So if you need 5 or 6%, that works a lot of the time. And I would say if you're in a soul crushing job, take the risk. Pay attention if the wind of the market stays at your back. Hasn't been in the last couple of months, but if it stays at your back, then you might be done right there. But on the other hand, as you correctly point out, you don't have to have your investments cover at all. If they're covering most of it, you can go out and find something that hopefully isn't soul crushing. Maybe even brings you joy to bring in the extra 10, 20,000 that you need to cover that gap. And I'll also add, and I think, you know, you have experience with talking to people who are FI as well. I've yet to meet a relatively young person who is FI who sits around drinking pina coladas and doing nothing else. I mean, by definition, if you, you know, if you have the wherewithal to achieve that, you're a pretty smart, ambitious, energetic kind of person. And you might not want to keep doing the work you were doing. That doesn't mean you don't want to keep working. In fact, Work is an important part of the human experience. It just means you now have the freedom to pursue only work that speaks to you and and that you enjoy. And it's not all that hard to make an extra 10 or 20. You know, it's a lot harder to make an extra 100, but you don't have to do that. I love that, Jim. So look, one of the things that people have said to me on the workshops, and I'd really love your opinion on this, is I am, let's say, 55 I haven't really saved. I'm starting from scratch. You're telling me I need a million if I want to spend 40. Like, this sounds ridiculous. I'm scared off. And then I don't bother at all. What would you say to that person who's maybe a little bit further down the road and just goes, this seems impossible? That's a great question. So I think what I would say is you need to understand that it's not an on-off switch. And I realized that I just made it sound like it's an on-off switch, so that's my fault. 
but let me correct that impression. Once you start on the simple path to wealth, once you start saying, you know what, I want to spend some of my money buying my freedom, every dollar you invest moves you a little bit further forward. So just as we were talking about, if you need 60 grand a year to live on and you only have the million, doesn't mean you can't pull the trigger and leave that soul crushing job, means you can't depend on your portfolio solely to cover your expenses, but you can go out and do something else. So every step on the way brings you that much closer to having that freedom. And every step on the way makes you that much freer. So I actually think of it in terms of two stages in, in your life. Uh, not everybody shares the definition I'm about to give, but this is my definition. There's being financially independent, which means you have enough money to cover all of your expenses. That's my definition of that. So again, you need 40,000, you got a million, you're financially independent. But that stage between when you first start and when you get to that end goal, you are building what I call your FU money. And that simply means that you are building a stash of money that allows you to make bolder decisions because you are not so dependent paycheck to paycheck. When you're dependent paycheck to paycheck, you're owned by whoever's providing those paychecks. And step by step, as you build your wealth, as you build your investments, you are less and less a slave to those people and to your boss. And by the way, this applies even if you love the company you work for and you work for a great boss, because just like things change in the entrepreneurial environment where, you know, like my friends, you might suddenly have your county saying, hey, you can't operate your Airbnbs until this virus goes away. Your boss may move on and be replaced by somebody who's not so great. Your company may change hands. There are any number of things that can happen. They've, in fact, happened to me in my career. So it's an uncertain world. And every step you take in building your investments makes you that much fiscally stronger and able to weather the storms. And it allows you to make bolder and bolder decisions until maybe one of those decisions is to just let your money do all the work and step away to do something else. Financially independence is not binary. I can almost hear Katie, my wife, in my ears now. She loves maths and numbers. She says it's not a one or a zero. You're not either have nothing or you're completely financially independent. There's a whole range in between. And building that range gives you that boldness, which I love. And as I have gone further in my entrepreneurial journey, and I'm not as reliant on the money that comes from my business, I've been able to take bolder decisions. I've said no to certain clients. I've said no to different people. And that's actually helped me to expand faster, which is really interesting how being brave and saying what you need, what you want and what you won't accept can actually be a faster route to success. But when you start, that's tough. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're living paycheck to paycheck, it's very hard to be bold. But, you know, if you're not living paycheck to paycheck and you have that resource, then you could make bolder decisions. And and those bolder decisions might be as simple as speaking up more in in your company environment, more more aggressively expressing your ideas and your opinions on things. And that gets noticed because most people because they are living paycheck to paycheck are too timid to do that. The other thing I would add to this part of our conversation is 
that when you get to that theoretical FI moment where you're financially independent based on the 4% rule, we talked about, well, it doesn't have to stop there. Frequently, people say, you know, I, I like my job or I like running the business I've created. I don't, I don't want to have to stop now. And more often than you would think, I've said to people, hitting your number and becoming financially independent doesn't mean you have to quit your job or give up your business. It just means you can do whatever you want to do. And if you choose to continue working and building that, well, of course, you get stronger and stronger, much beyond, you know, the 4%. So it, it is a snowballing effect. And that reminds me of another thing that I wanted to add when you were saying that the million dollars seems very intimidating and maybe an obstacle to people starting. Well, that's true. One of the most common questions I get when I do what we call one-on-one sessions at our Chautauqua which is where I sit down with an individual for a personal consultation, is I'll have people, and these are very smart people, by the way, who will come and they'll show me their numbers. And again, the math is very simple, as we talked about. And they will say, they'll ask, am I financially independent? I remember one woman in particular who was spending 100000 a year. So we know the math implies that she needs $2.5 million to be financially independent. And she had $5 million. And her question was, am I financially independent? She, by the way, was a banker. She was about to go into a job after Chautauqua on the following Monday where they were going to pay her a million dollars a year. This is a very, very smart woman, right? Certainly she can do the basic math. And of course, I said to her, yes, you are financially independent. You can do whatever you want to do. And if you want to take that job on Monday because you think it'll be fun, it'll be a challenge, it's something that you relish doing, by all means. If you're gonna take it because you think you need the money, well, think again. Now, why does somebody that smart ask such a obvious and simple question, maybe? I mean, how does she not see that not only is she financially independent, but twice over? And she's not uncommon in that. And so I've given this a lot of thought. And what I finally concluded is that it starts out as a snowball. And it's very slow when you first start investing. And it seems like there's no progress at all. And, you know, it slowly grows a little bit. But it just seems like, oh, where this is, where is this going? It's never going to happen. But there's a little thing called compounding, which... I don't know if this is actually true, but Einstein has supposedly said it's the most powerful force in the universe. And compounding simply means that that process over time grows faster and faster and faster. And so if you graph it, you have this very flat, gradually increasing line, and then all of a sudden it spikes like a hockey stick. And I think it's that spike because of compounding that catches people off guard. And it's they look at it one day and they're like, holy cow. You know, the math is telling me I'm, I'm here, but how did that happen? I mean, just a couple of years ago, it didn't look like I was making that much progress at all. So, yeah, it is a it is a slow thing, but compounding is your friend, unless you're in debt, and then compounding works exactly the same way, just against you. It <laughs> just makes everyone else rich rather than you. Exactly, exactly. JL, I got excited. I got excited because I heard you mention the word hockey, and I'm much more comfortable talking about hockey than I am compound interest, but I'm on the journey. I'm on my way. (laughs) So all you need to do, Simon, is is lay your hockey stick on the floor, and and you've got a great illustration of compound interest. 
This is absolutely genius. You've just given me the strategy to engage my kids about investing. So I'm going to try that and I will report back on how it goes. <laughs> JL, I've got a question for you. So just listening to everything that you've been saying is just fascinating. And thank you for sharing it and, and breaking it down so simply. Something that Ken, the humble penny blogger from the UK, said a couple of weeks ago, which was something I'd never considered before, was about intergenerational wealth and about the decisions that we make now, what what impact that could have on our families and, you know, after we've gone and so on. Which made it reminded me what you were saying, that this is a long game. And I'm forty five years old. Should and could my strategy change? Because, you know, Jessica's in a very different position because she started very young and, you know, the youngsters that are in the pop up business school are starting young. What does it look like when you get to middle age and you're just starting out on this investing journey? That's a great, great question. And my answer is completely different than the traditional answer you get in the financial community. So let me kind of briefly lay out the traditional answer to that question, and then then we'll talk about the difference. So the traditional answer to that is you, when you're young, you want to be aggressive in your investing. And basically, that means you want to invest in stocks. And then as you get older, you steadily want to transition more and more into bonds, which are less volatile. So basically, stocks provide much greater returns than bonds do over time, but it is a much rougher and rocky road. So they're very volatile. Bonds provide a much less return over time, but it's a much smoother ride. So the idea is that if you're 70 years old and you get hit with a bear market like we've been hit with recently, you might not have enough years left to recover from that, uh, even though we know the market always goes up and always recovers from bear markets, but it can take a couple of years. And so the theory is that you don't want to have to deal with that because you have a lifespan. That's fine as far as it goes. And if you are only thinking about your own lifespan, then that's great. I wrote a post a couple of years ago called Investing for Seven Generations. And the seven generation thing comes from a Native American philosophy here in uh, North America, which suggests that when you're making important decisions, you shouldn't be thinking about what's best for you or what's best for your tribe. You should be thinking about the impact seven generations out. So I am not investing for my lifetime. I am investing also for my daughter's lifetime because she'll inherit the money when the time comes. I'm investing for the charities that I support because they will inherit when I pass. So both my daughter and those charities have a long time horizon. And then I have said to my daughter, as I educate her in this, that when this money comes to you, it's not your money. You are the custodian of this money for the next generation. You have two responsibilities. One is to be a good custodian of that money. And the second responsibility is to explain to your children that it is not their money. They are the custodians of it for the generation that follows them. Now, that doesn't mean you can't enjoy the money. You can't benefit from it. You can, in fact, draw 4% and for your own benefit, but you don't do more than that because you want to carry it on for generations. Now, who knows how long that'll happen. It depends on how skilled she is in passing on the message and, and subsequent generations. But that's how I look at it, Simon. I am not 
investing for my life expectancy. If I did, I'd own a whole lot more bonds than I do. I'm investing ideally seven generations out. Well, I think this is fascinating because this then adds to, I don't think I'll get there in my lifetime, so I won't try. Well, why don't you get there 10%? And then the next generation will get there 30%. And you could actually see it as you're just starting this and helping your kids to get there and work on it as well. So that actually changes the viewpoint completely over, oh, I'll never get to a million. Well, maybe you won't, but you could help your kids get there. Well, and, and exactly. it's there, There's a great quote, and I can't quite think of it, about old people planting trees that they will never enjoy the shade of. But that's basically what you're doing. You're planting trees that you won't enjoy the shade, but your children and their children and their children's children will enjoy the shade. Alan, I know that you've spotted a lot of the the phrases and conventional wisdom, you know, money's the root of all evil and so on. It just reminds me of another one that I've heard so many times around my family and friends over the years, which is you can't take it with you. And almost as justification for spending as much money as you can as quickly as you can in your kind of later years in life. You know? Well, and, and that applies if you're only thinking about you, if you're only thinking about your life. But even then, you know, I, uh, I'd want to have money set aside so that I can make sure that for my time, however long it is, that I have the money to live comfortably and to support myself. So I certainly don't want to spend it all and wind up living in poverty when I'm 90. So, Jim, one thing I've noticed as we're going through this, and I've done it before, there's actually a lot of words here that your average person just won't understand. We've had bear markets and portfolios and stocks and shares and index funds. There's actually an entire another language to investing and a whole range of words. How did you learn the language of investing? And how would you say to someone else that they should learn about this? Well, that's a, that's a great question. So I, I learned about it through trial and error. I first started investing in 1975, and I really didn't know anything. And sometimes people have asked me, how is it that you know so much about this stuff? And my answer to that is, well, I, you know, over the decades, I've made every conceivable mistake you could possibly make. How did, how did I learn the terminology? I've never actually been asked that question, Alan. I've never really thought about it, but I would have to say that probably just the same way you learn any part of the language through reading. So, you know, if you're in medicine or engineering or anything else, you're, you're going to be reading things in, in those fields and they all have their own jargon. And when you start with investing, then, you know, it has its jargon. Uh, and sometimes I candidly lose sight of that because to me, it's just more words in the English language. And sometimes I have to be reminded that not everybody has come across those particular words. And uh, so it's that's a great question. And we can get into specific definitions of any of those if you'd like. And of course, people can Google the answer to those questions as well. Well, I think that's really important because so many people look at the language of investing They'll hear words they don't understand, glaze over, and then go, I'll never understand that. Which is really interesting because if they were reading a book, they'd probably look up the word or look up the definition or they do something different. So that makes me really interested. Like people are so scared of investing that 
they don't even want to learn about it. Well, and, and I think in fairness to those people, there's a reason for that. And the reason is that Wall Street, and I use that term to generically mean the professional class in the investing community, have gone out of their way to make investing seem very, very complicated. And they've created any number of investments uh, that are indeed very complicated. So when somebody says, I can't possibly begin to understand that, well, there's a lot of investing out there that I don't understand. And in fact, you know, you roll back the calendar a decade when we had the financial crisis, that came out of largely these guys creating these exotic investments that even they didn't understand. And of course, they cratered the economy around the world. So that's the bad news is, and by the way, this is not an accident. This is done by design to, in fact, get people to say, I, I can't deal with this. I don't, this is beyond me. I went away, you know, because if they can convince you of that, then that drives you into their arms and, and allows them to charge all kinds of very, very high fees to ostensibly guide you along. And of course, they're going to guide you along in ways that typically make them money as opposed to you. So that's the bad news. The good news is if you envision a long banquet table and it is laden with all kinds of exotic foods that have very complex recipes to make and what have you, and you look at that and you say, my goodness, I could, you know, it would take a lifetime to learn how to prepare all of these dishes. I am going to starve to death because I can't do that. Or I'm going to have to only eat in restaurants where they will do it for me. And that's very, very expensive. It's bad news. Good news is one tiny corner of that laden table is where the simple foods that are really healthiest for you, they're just sitting in this little corner and they're the simplest and the healthiest. And they're really all you need. So you can put your arm on that table by those simple foods. You can sweep everything else on the floor because you don't need it. And you just focus on those very simple foods that are very easy and simple to prepare. And you will have a actually a much healthier life. It's exactly the same when it comes to investing. And those simple foods in the investing world are low-cost index funds. But broccoli's not sexy, Jim. <laughs> and neither are low-cost index funds. <laughs> I'm all for sexy, but not when it comes to my investments. I don't want my investments to be sexy. I want them to be profitable. I think that's the best thing I've ever heard you say, J.R. <laughs> We're going to have that written up in a quote image somewhere, I think. Um, it might be a low bar. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to just to build on some of the stuff that you were saying there, because that was me. That was exactly me. And, you know, my brother's been in banking since the age of 16. He left school. He went straight into working for a high street bank in the UK and then worked his way into investment banking. And he understood this language. He's been managing his own pension for 20 years, but it always seemed like a conversation that I would never have with him. And I think just to build on what you were saying, I think there's some limiting beliefs that prevent people from perhaps wanting to be curious about these terms and understanding the language because they just don't see that it's within their reach. So what's the point anyway? And I think it was just off my radar like I didn't ever see myself as someone that would be able to do that I would always be the guy that would have to figure out the next thing to go and make more money when the money ran out and I feel fortunate that 
you know, through conversations with Alan and with you and, and, and some of our friends that I've been able to deal with that. But that definitely was a barrier for me to engaging with investing was this whole new lexicon. And it felt the same to me that it, it had been invented by people to keep me out. And I think that's definitely changed the more that I've understood the terms and it's become it's become less less scary to, to, you know, to start talking about it in using the words of investing, you know? So I would say two things about that, Simon. First of all, you're not alone. I think that's the way most people who look at investing for the first time feel. And again, it's by design. I mean, it's the investment world intentionally creates incredibly complex things to make you feel that way and not to keep you out but to draw you in, which is much more insidious because they want you to right. throw up your hands in despair and say, this is just too much for my pretty little head and therefore you do it for me. And of course, that's how they make their outsized fees. And you know, there, I think there was a book published a number of years ago, Where Are the Customer's Yachts? And you go and all these professional investors, you know, and and they're all very, very wealthy and they're all have their yachts. But where, where are their customers yachts? And I think it's important for our listeners to understand that by and large, these people are not greatly skilled at investing. What they're greatly skilled at is raising money from investors that they can charge fees on. That's how they make their money. So think of a hedge fund, right? And hedge funds, people who run hedge funds tend to be enormously wealthy. And do they know something about investing? Yes, certainly I'll give them credit for that. Although uh, Warren Buffett famously not too long ago had a 10-year bet with one of his hedge fund friends. And Warren said, I'll just take the S&P 500 index fund, which is just the 500 largest companies in the U.S. I'll just buy that and hold it for 10 years. And you do your hedge fund thing, and let's see who comes out better at the end of 10 years. Well, long story short, the first couple of years, the hedge fund was ahead of the game. By the end of 10 years, the index fund, which cost pennies to own, crushed the hedge fund. So you say, well, okay, well, then how come these hedge fund guys are billionaires? Well, here's why. So when you invest in the hedge fund, they charge 2%. So you put a million dollars with them, they get 2% of that every year. And it doesn't matter whether they manage to grow it or not grow it. And by the way, it doesn't matter whether they manage to grow it, but not quite as much as the index, which typically happens, they're still going to get their 2%. And then on top of that, if they grow it at all, again, not outperforming the index, just something more than zero, they get 20% of that. So that's how you wind up being a billionaire running a hedge fund. And that's how, generally speaking, investment people are so wealthy. It's not to be confused with having some secret sauce of picking better investments that you and I can do. It's a matter of inducing people to say, I can't do this myself. Here's my money. You do it for me. And then charging them, in the case of hedge funds, 2% and 20%. It's a license to steal. Wow. You know, I was just about to ask if you wanted to create a hedge fund with me, JL, because of your knowledge on the topic. But <laughs> from your last sentence, I suspect this isn't going to happen. Um, well, you know, I have often thought to myself that I would be a much, much wealthier man if I had done that. I mean, I, 
you know, I have this little book out and I have this blog out and, you know, they make a little bit of money. And, and I, in fact, a, a quick story, if you'll indulge me, the very first Chautauqua we did, one of the attendees was what we have come to finally know as a dragged along spouse. That is, his wife was the one who was really into this and came and he just sort of came along to indulge her. Well, it turned out he was a Wall Street guy. He ran an actively managed fund. And, you know, I am... I'm not a fan of those things, although they certainly make a lot of money for the people who run them. And I think his name was Dave, if I remember correctly. He was a very nice man, and we had lovely conversations. We, I guess by unspoken mutual consent, never drifted into investing, but he was a delightful guy. And I was giving a presentation later that week, as all speakers at Chautauqua do. And in that presentation, I was pretty harshly critical of people like Dave. And I thought to myself, do I want to modify my talk because, you know, I've actually got one of these guys in the audience. And, and they thought, no, you know, I'm not going to do that. I mean, it is what it is. And so I gave my talk as if he wasn't there. And, you know, he's in, in the audience and again, a very nice man. And he's sort of nodding and smiling. And, and I'm sure he was thinking to myself, yeah, OK, but I bet I make more in a month than your net worth. <laughs> And he was probably not wrong about that. And I was sitting up there thinking to myself, yeah, I'm right. And this is the right way for people to invest. But I bet Dave makes more than, than my net worth. <laughs> so who's who's the idiot? <laughs> so, yeah, I'm all for opening a hedge fund. Let's, let's do it. All we need is somebody who's skilled in convincing people to give us money that we can charge fees on. Great. I'm going to get some couriers to send over the paperwork right away, JL. Um, <laughs> let's do the deal. <laughs> I'm not sure yeah, I, I guess, like where this is going. Yeah, I love it. I'm excited. This is the this is the most excited I've ever been about investing. I'm going for this. So, JL, like, whilst I'm on a roll, a slightly different question that's in my mind. It's a giant question, and I'm asking you to get your crystal ball out, but perhaps <laughs> not in the same way as you're often asked in relation to market performance and so on. But what went through my mind, two things. One is about education. And, and I wondered if you had any thoughts about just partly from your own experiences, but partly from the conversations that you have with, you know, people all over the world about, you know, financial literacy and, and investment literacy in particular. Do you have any views on what we should be educating young people as they come out of schools and colleges and universities? And if we could imagine a place and time where financial literacy and education about investing was the norm, what impact that might have on what you know to be true about what the current situation is, if this makes sense. It's a big question and I'm, I'm kind of feeling my way through it, but maybe if you want to chunk it out and, and pick the bits that are, that are interesting to you. Yeah, well, a, a couple of things on that. First of all, it's, and I'm speaking uh, as an American in the United States, it's not something that's commonly taught in our schools. Although my sense is that's beginning to change. Now, I get that sense from feedback I get from educators. So a number of high school teachers and college professors have told me that they have created a course around or a part of one of the courses they're already doing around my book and teaching the principles in my book. And that was something when I was writing the book I never anticipated. And I think of all these poor students who now think of my book as being a textbook. But I think that's a great step. In fact, last week, I was a guest lecturer for a professor at the University of Colorado who had initially asked me to come in 
and do the class in person. And of course, with COVID-19, we, we did it online, but that's the first time I've done that. So she had, I think, 50 students uh, all online, and uh, we took a bunch of questions from them and exceedingly bright people and, and asking great questions. So I think it is a coming thing. One of the disturbing things is that on the rare occasion, at least in the past, I don't know that this is still true, when high schools would touch on investing, it was usually done with some stockbroker and it was would be built around having a stock picking contest. So there's two things. One is that the lack of education is unfortunate. But even worse, maybe, is the wrong education is even more unfortunate. And it seemed to me that having these guys who make their money by convincing you to invest, as we talked about earlier, come in and talk to young people about picking stocks and picking individual stocks is is a very, very difficult path that most often leads to tears, is, in my view, just irresponsible. But in defense of the educators, I mean, these were the people reaching out to them. And of course, they're reaching out to them because they are talking to future customers, right? They're talking to young people, presumably are going to graduate from high school and college and then start making money. And they'll say, oh, I, I remember Alan who came and gave that lecture at my class. You know, he seemed like a nice guy and I'm sure he was. I'll give him my money to manage. So I, you know, I think, unfortunately, a lot of times, what is being taught is exactly, in my opinion, the wrong message and the wrong lessons. So, Jim, on that exact note, I think a large percentage of the audience that we have at Pop-Up Business School and on The Rebel Entrepreneur, people who are building businesses and they've not been educated in finance, let's say they've made their first 10 grand, they've saved some money in the business, they've created a business emergency fund, which is very important, and then they've got 10 grand to invest. Where do they start? Do they just whack it straight in an index fund? Should they start educating themselves? Like, where do you start if you're brand new? So first of all, you should absolutely, before you invest, you should educate yourself. You should never invest unless you understand the ramifications of what you're doing. And never fall prey to the temptation that I've got to do it now. You know, now's the moment, blah, blah, blah. There is time and take the time to educate yourself. I, of course, I guess I'm a little biased. I would suggest that you can come to my blog and read through the stock series. That's not just my opinion, by the way. It's garnered very favorable reviews from knowledgeable people. It's incredible. The stock series is fantastic. And for a more condensed version, I would recommend the book, The Simple Path to Wealth. It's incredible, Jim. It's had such a big impact on Katie and I's life. I would absolutely say that. And I know it's easier for me to recommend than for you to recommend. So get The Simple Path to Wealth. That's a great place. If you're not from America, skip the American tax chapters in the middle. If you're from America, study them hard. But it is a fantastic book. Well, thank you. And, you know, I will also say that there is nothing in the book that you can't find on the blog. And that was by design because I didn't want people to have to buy the book to get the information Now the book is, as you said, it's more concise. It's a little better organized. I certainly spent more time polishing the writing, whether it's more polished writing, I'll, I'll leave to the readers to decide. I would also, you know, Jack Bogle, who is the founder of, of Vanguard and um, the guy who created index funds back in 1975, he has several books out, and they are all well worth reading. And 
you will get a similar message to what I talk about. So I think those are two great places to start and understand what you're getting into. One of the things that I say is that my path requires that you invest and you hold for the long term and that when bear markets like the one we're having now in a bear market to define is just when the market takes a plunge, if it drops 20% or more, it's classified as a bear, 10% is a correction, 20% is a bear anyway. So when you get into one of these sharp declines, a bear market, you do nothing. You have to stay the course. If you panic and sell, my advice will leave you bleeding by the side of the road. That's why you want to educate yourself, because before you invest the way I suggest in index funds, you have to make a commitment to yourself that you are going to hold through the bad times. And there will be bad times. One of the key points that I try to make to people is that bear markets are part of the process. They are not unusual. They're very scary and the media goes nuts and and it sounds like the end of the world. It's never the end of the world. It's very scary, but it's a perfectly natural part of the process. You can't time them. You can't dance in and out of them, as Warren Buffett has told us. You need to tie yourself to the mast and stay the course. So those are the kinds of things you need to know before you invest. I cringe a little bit if somebody hears me say, well, invest in a broad-based stock index fund, then you'll be fine without understanding that you'll only be fine if you stay the course. So don't do anything until you've done some reading. You know, if you're interested in what I have to say about this, my suggestion would be go to the blog. The stock series is a button at the top and read some of the stock series. And if it resonates with you, then you can continue reading it or you can buy the book. Uh, But you can sample it, so to speak, and decide whether what I have to say resonates with you. And if it does, wonderful. If it doesn't, then I would suggest you find a source that does. I love that, Jim. So one of the things that's slightly different from an entrepreneur to an employee is the lumpiness or when your income comes. With an employee, you quite regularly, you get a regular check. You get a regular paycheck every month into your account and that's it. As an entrepreneur, sometimes you go months without income and then it all comes at once and it's a very much feast or famine thing. But do you treat investing any differently with those two things or how would you treat it? Well, I think the only difference would be because you're obviously you're correct. It is a feast or famine sort of thing. So even setting the investing part of it aside, you want to have a fairly large uh, emergency fund to cover you through those lean times so you can simply pay your bills. And then I would suggest that the excess above doing that is where you want to invest. Now, If you're serious about buying your freedom, if you're serious about being financially independent, you have to commit to saving and investing a large percentage of your income. The target I suggest is 50%. And to people in the FI community, they sort of roll their eyes at me and say, 50%, you should be doing 70, 80%. And of course, people not in the FI community roll their eyes at me and say, 50%, no human being could possibly save 50% of their income. Well, you could, if you went to work tomorrow and your income was cut in half, you would figure out how to live on 50% of your income. So that's the kind of commitment you need to make. So overall, as an entrepreneur, I would 
strive to save 50% of my income. But consistent with having dry powder to live on through those lean times. So it does make it a little more complicated, but the principles are still basically the same. Absolutely. And if you haven't got that emergency fund, when things change, it's quite difficult. So I'd absolutely recommend three to six months of money aside in case things go wrong. Simon, you have a question or a thought, I believe. I do. Yeah. I've gone from bear markets to bear traps, JL. What was on my mind was in your experience of helping people navigate their way through this and just linking to Alan's question about, you know, where do you start? What are the traps that people fall into in those early stages of financial independence journey and those first few steps that they take in investing? What do you see are the most common mistakes that the listeners of The Rebel Entrepreneur can watch out for and and mitigate against if they follow this path too? Well, the most common mistake I hear about is people, and this this won't be surprising given our, our conversation so far, people who throw up their hands in despair at understanding this stuff and have turned their money over to somebody to manage it for them. And then they come across uh, my writings or the writings of people like me, and they suddenly realize how expensive that choice has been. And very typically, it's also they're invested in things that are underperforming the basic index because very little out there outperforms the index. In fact, over time, the research indicates that nothing really outperforms the index. So that's the single biggest mistake. And if anybody listening has not begun investing or hasn't done that, then that's one that you can avoid. And unwinding from that is sometimes uncomfortable and and challenging. The other mistake I would suggest that we kind of touched on is people who come across this, they get excited about it, they run out and they buy the index fund, and then the big bad bear comes along and they're like, holy cow, I just put my $10,000 that I worked really hard for and, you know, I, I put it in and I woke up and suddenly a week or two later, you know, it's down to $7,000. It's lost 30% or down to $5,000 as, you know, 10 years ago and lost 50%. This is a terrible idea. And then they sell and they've locked in that loss and they lick their wounds and they say, well, you know, the stock market, that's just like Las Vegas. I'm never going to do that again. That was stupid. Well, you know, that's because they didn't take the time to educate themselves and learn what kind of game investing is and how you play it. And the way you play it is that you ignore it when it goes down. You stay the course because, yes, it goes down. And yes, it's scary to look at your $10,000 become seven or five. But if you understand how these things work, you know that over time, that will not only recover that, but it'll go on to much greater heights. And I frequently tell people, especially young people who are, or maybe not so young, but people who are just beginning to build their wealth and investing, a bear market is an absolute gift because it allows you to buy stocks on sale. So my daughter is a good example of this. I happen to be looking at her investments and we've talked about we're in the middle of a bear market. And in March, you know, every month she puts in a percentage, a certain amount of money. And in April, in the middle of the bear market, I noticed that this that same amount of money bought 19% more shares in VTSAX, which is the total stock market index fund in the US, 
bought 19% more shares for the same money. She was buying those shares on sale. So a bear market, if you stay the course and you keep investing, as you should do, is an absolute, it's not something to be afraid of, it's an absolute gift. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Jim, I feel like we're only just getting going. I feel like we're only just starting, but we've already been going an hour and 15. It's gone so fast. I want the entrepreneurs out there to really think about this. And here's the reason why, and I'm going to come to you for your blog afterwards and your book, because that's where I want people to go after this episode. But the mistake my dad made when he was building his businesses is he never thought the good times would end. He was making money. He made incredible money, incredible money in the 80s, money that I would like, unbelievable money. He never thought it was change. So he just spent it all. He spent it on houses, cars, He had a bright red Bentley Turbo R with a six-litre engine. He had Mercedes. He had everything. He had all the food, all the lifestyle, and he spent everything. And he never saved. He never invested. And then times got tough, and he was destroyed by those tough times. And if I could leave one piece of advice for all of the entrepreneurs based exactly on what you're saying, it is save and invest as the times are good. Put that money away because it will protect you when the times are bad. And that's such a critical lesson, such a critical lesson. And one that I had to go through the pain of my dad and seeing it and then my own education to actually realize. You know, and this is this is not new. This is not new information. This is this is right out of the Bible. You know, the Bible talks about seven years of feast and seven years of famine and putting away grain during the years of plenty. So you have grain for when there's famine. Life is always uncertain. There have always been, it's always been cyclical. There have always been good times and bad times. And just like nobody should be surprised by a bear market, which is that's very cycle we're talking about. Nobody should be surprised when their economic declines. I am I remember in the early 2000s, uh, I'd actually lost a job because that was when the tech market cratered and then 9-11 happened and, you know, it was bad economic times and I actually lost my job for that, but I was financially independent, so it didn't affect me or my family at all. But I'd be watching the television and, of course, the news media would trot some guy out and they'd be interviewing him and he'd say, you know, I, I've had this executive job at this company for the last 20 years and and I just lost my job and, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to pay the mortgage and I'm going to lose my house. And I don't mean to sound cold hearted, but I watch that and I say, you had an executive level job for 20 years and you're a month or two from losing your house. I'm sorry. You just were not very wise in how you structured things. And again, this is not new information. You know, you can go back thousands of years and the lessons were there. You know, prepare for the years of famine during the years of feast. I love that, Jim. Simon, do you have any closing thoughts, remarks, comments? I think we need to get JL back for another episode of The Rebel Entrepreneur so that we can continue the conversation because I, I feel like we're just getting started here. Well, as you've already seen, it's hard to get me to talk. It's hard to pry me out of my shell. But if <laughs> <you're> <laughs> willing, eventually we've got you there. <laughs> 
Jim, do you have any closing thoughts or comments for the entrepreneurs listening to the show? I think what I would say is entrepreneurship is a great way to live. It's a great way to build wealth that you can then turn around to invest. So it'll, it'll work for you. So uh, I salute and applaud all of the people who have chosen that path and go for it. I love that. Thank you, Jim. And I would like to say thank you to you. Your book, your teachings have had an incredible impact on my life and Katie's life. And we achieved financial independence a couple of years ago based on a lot of what you taught about buying your freedom first and saving and investing. So thank you for what you have put out there. And to the audience, read the book, read the book, read the blog, The Simple Path to Wealth. Learn about investing. Don't put your head in the sand and close your eyes when I say read the book. Do it. It makes a difference. You've even got an audio book, haven't you, Jim? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, you can get it as a print book, as a, a Kindle, and an audio version. And I recorded the audio version myself. So you get Jim's Beautiful. wonderful voice. Just do it. Learn about investing. It will protect you when the bad times come. Again, it will protect you. Um, Alan, I've got an idea. I've got an idea. Oh, what's the idea? We've been working on two or three book ideas ourselves for a few years, and we kind of dip in, and then we dip out, and then we back dip back in again. I figured out that we should call our book The Complicated Path to Wealth, which is the entrepreneurial route of generating ideas. And then we can run it alongside JL's book. And then people can choose, do you want the simple path to wealth or the, or the more challenging path to wealth? I think we could make Jim very rich by doing that. <laughs> well, I would suggest to your, your listeners who might be intimidated by this whole investing thing that the operative word in the title of my book is simple. It really is simple. All you need to do is understand a few basic, simple things employ them and then you can get on with the rest of your life and not have to spend your time worrying about how to invest your money you can just let it grow in the background it's exactly what my daughter's doing she's got more important things to do than trying to figure out all kinds of exotic investments i love that and on that note i'm sure you have more important things to do than listen to my podcast get out there build your business make money invest it and live life to the full Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Simon. Thank you to everyone who's listening. Go make it happen. You've been listening to Rebel Entrepreneur with Alan Donegan. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes to get new, fresh episodes as soon as they've launched. To stay up to date with the rebellion, visit choosefi.com slash rebel. Thanks for joining the rebellion. 